Yeah. All of me. Why not take all of me? Can't you see? I'm no good with all you. Welcome, everybody. And here we are again. Another episode of the Hollywood Godfather podcast. And the three musketeers are here again. Pat Picciarelli, my co-writer. Pat, how are you, my friend? Hello. In our millennium, I love saying that word, Megan. <laughs> You're here, dear? Hello, Gianni. How are you? I'm really good. Really good, fortunately. And I'm told we have an exciting guest. Could you make the proper introduction? We do. I will do the introduction. So our guest tonight is a best-selling author and nurse whose book, The Nurse's Story, revealed the heart as well as the shocking experiences of nurses that they face behind closed hospital doors. She is the author and co-author of over eight books, including her newest, A Tale of Love, Power, and Writing, about a relationship that spanned over 20 years with a man who has directly and indirectly influenced the careers of all of us here. The book is called Me and Mario, and that man was Mario Puzo, author of The Godfather. I first heard from our guest when she invited us to join a virtual celebration for Mario's 100th birthday on October 15th, and she was kind enough to agree to join us here tonight. So I would like to welcome Carol Gino to the show. Carol, thanks for being with us tonight. Hi. Carol, really thank you so much. Good, guys. Nice meeting all of you. When, uh, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting Mario at the Gulf and Western building <laughs> at mm -hmm. Columbus Circle mm -hmm. in, in um, the late, I guess it was the late 70s, and then obviously we got into the film in 71 and released it in 72. And that film, for me, has changed my life. And I didn't realize you were a nurse because huh? a, a nurse saved my life. Yeah, huh? This is yeah. my second pandemic. In uh, August 7th, 1949, I was stricken with polio and I was quarantined for five years in Bellevue. Wow. And if it wasn't for Dolores Barone, I wouldn't be here. And uh, she's a big yeah. part of our book and where we're going with even the 10-hour the miniseries. Uh -huh. Thank so, God for nurses, right? Oh, yeah. No, without nurses, man. I love nurses <laughs> for many reasons. That's <laughs> a <laughs> so, so, so tell us of your escapades with them and we'll share what we know and I have so many things you probably don't even know about. oh I'm sure I'd love to hear them too um, let's see now I guess the I guess I'd have to tell you first that uh, when I first read The Godfather I mean I was a crazy ardent feminist okay this, this is what I mean there's divine design because who would take a crazy ardent feminist and mix them up with somebody who wrote the most romantic patriarchy going, you know? So I read that book and I thought, who is this man? I mean, really, where are the women in this book and why are they so invisible? Then what happens, fast forward about God knows how many years, and I get called from an agency, a nursing agency, and they say, uh, we need an Italian. I said, you need an Italian what? They said, we need an Italian woman to take care of the godfather's wife because they want one of their own. I said, they want one of their own? I told you, I wasn't working anymore. I, I needed days off. It was, she said, Carol, please, you gotta do this for me. So I said, okay. So I said, what's the woman's name? And he said, Erica. 
I said, Erica, an Italian That's Erica? That's not a T, I know. She says to me, well, he married her, so he must love Italians, so you have to go. So I got in the first night, and she was already in pain, so I ran upstairs, I gave her a shot, and Mario just looked at me stunned. And I think the most surprising thing for me about the dichotomy between the man I thought wrote The Godfather, or should have been the man in my head that wrote The Godfather, was such a gentle man and so family-oriented. Oh, my God, yeah. That, you know, and I used to say to him, you can go stay in another room. I'll stay with her. Don't worry. And he'd say to me, no, because if I reach out to touch, and she reaches out to touch my hand, and I'm not there, she'll be frightened. And oh. so the whole time she was sick, whether it was the three of us, <laughs> you know. So one night she had, I said to her, what worries you most? And she said that there won't be anybody to keep an eye on my family. And I said to her, hey, I promise you, I'll keep an eye on you. And Mario said to me one time, oh, I'm sure she'd appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> well, she did say keep an eye on nothing else, no hands. <laughs> you, you took advantage of that. Hey, look, he was, committed to, he was committed to writing, and my passion was nursing and healing. So I looked at him and I thought, oh, my God, we got to do something here, you know? And that's how it started, really. And, and did the children all take you in graciously, or was anybody resistant to you? Oh, be serious. Be serious. Like they loved their mother like mad. Oh, I know. But Mario. And there was Mario, five of them. Well, yeah. six, six including yeah. Mario. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that they were happy that there was someone that made their their father happy. Because, you know, Mario wasn't a big talker. No kidding. And, uh, yeah. He's actually an introvert. Yeah. It's crazy. Right? I mean. Yeah, and he used to say to me, I'd be depressed if I didn't want to kill you, <laughs> you know? <laughs> but the fact is that I was just, very much, we, we spent a lot of time, like we were in the trenches, talking about Erica. So it was like battle buddies, you know? And then I was there to sort of help them negotiate a little bit of that stuff. Plus, I had started to go to writing school before I met him because such awful things were going on in uh, hospitals. And nobody was, you talk about the mafia and Omerta? Medicine is way worse than that. Oh, they yeah. have you sign all kinds of consent papers, and you don't even know what you're signing, you know? Yeah. So I decided I wanted to write, and Mario said to me, well, you should write about nursing then, because people need to know what he does. By the way, he even wrote me a screenplay on the nurse's story, which I have in my bottom drawer. So I have the last screenplay Mario ever wrote, and it's about nurses. Do you know, I, I own one also. Oh, yeah? Well, he had a debt. You know, I, uh, Frank Costello, who was my mentor, yeah. owned a piece of the Tropicana Hotel. So, ah. so dur during the, uh, the break in between the Kennedy assassination and, and other things we were involved in, I opened a club at the Trop, and 
which you, you should know, Mario was a fixture there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he owed us about $50,000 at one time. Yeah, yeah. And I said, Mario, I says, uh, we got to straighten this out. Yeah. He's, he said, you're an aggressive guy. I says, yeah. I said, how does that help me with your money? Yeah, yeah. He says, well, I have a screenplay. I want you to read it. And I wrote it. I read it. And I bought it. And I paid off I paid off his marker. Matt Simba. Did you ever meet Matt Simba in the travels? Yeah. Yeah. I met Matt Simba when uh, Mario's daughter Dorothy was doing some kind of movie thing on one of the Yeah. Well Matt Simba and I op we owned Seven Graves for Rogan. Aha. Uh -huh. Which is okay. one of his best got screenplays, it. I think. Yeah, yeah, got it. And I, I, I actually went to Munich because I was engaged to Liza at the time. And uh, she was doing uh, cabaret. So mm -hmm. I, I got to meet everybody over there. And mm -hmm. I never forget it. We were in the ministry to get permission to actually go into pre-production because Mario was coming over in 1978 for the Cannes Film Festival for the mm -hmm. Superman 1. Yeah. While everybody was still happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Brenda was the father, which was even uh -huh. better. So they, they actually stayed in my house. They were my guests. It wasn't my house. It was Johnny and Yelly's house, Chateau uh -huh. Benefiat. And even Mario said, how did you get this house? I said, it's a long story. Don't worry about it. But uh -huh. uh, we had a blast, and uh, we got really involved. But then uh, when I told them, and during that time, they were rebuilding all these subways in Munich. So it looked like the, the Second World War. All the streets were ripped up. And I only needed the streets for five days, and they were uh, all gung-ho with it. And until I told them I have to hang out 20-foot SWAT stickers, oh God. <laughs> they actually asked me to leave the country. Yeah. And I well, did. Well, I mean, you got to figure out, I mean. <laughs> but I, mean, I still want to do that movie. I think I could do it now easier. But anyway. Yeah, so what he, was the most surprising thing that you found in that marrow? The man. You know what? He, he's such a recluse. And the thing we had in common, which is going to sound ridiculous to all our listeners, he and I never wore socks. <laughs> right. Isn't that the truth? Never wore socks he, in the winter. He used to say he couldn't breathe. If he had socks on, he couldn't breathe. Right. But I, I have the same feeling. I'm 77. Yeah. I don't. Yeah. I own socks, but I don't wear them. But right. I never wear socks. I wear a chinchilla coat, and I don't have socks on. What happens yeah. when it's five degrees in Manhattan? You go outside. What? What happens when it's five degrees in Manhattan and you go outside? I don't wear socks. Yeah, really? Mario never. didn't either. He'd wear it. No, Mar Mario never. And Mario and I wore the same type of slippers. He loved the Ralph Lauren velvet. He loved all the low arch stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Valley shoes and yep. Ralph slippers. Yep. Yep. And $20 yeah. cigars that he chew on all day long. Yeah. Yeah. Right, right. Oh my God! Okay, I've decided that that was his way of social distancing. Yeah, <laughs> I'm. Sh I'm shocked you had a 21-year relationship with that. <laughs> oh no, no, no! Hey, look, <laughs> I was I was brought up by an Italian father, so. Oh, he smoked the nobles. They're worse. Yeah. Right. And my father actually brought me up like a Spartan youth. So Mario always said it was great that I taught him to understand women. But I know that's only because I thought like a guy. It wasn't had nothing to do with it. 
<laughs> he used to say to me when he first met me, he used to say, you want to hear the good news or the bad news first? And I'd say, give me the good news first. He said, you remind me of my mother and my sister. And I said, all right, give me the bad news. He said, you remind me of my mother and my sister. <laughs> <laughs> so g give us some inside scoops of Mario, the, the man we don't know. The man you don't know. Okay. I think the man you don't know was absolutely, um, he had a lot of insecurity and he was timid in a lot of ways, you know, but he had a crazy itch for Tara. Otherwise he would never have had a relationship with me for 21 years. But he had <laughs> an itch for Tara and a stack of black chips that he loved to play. I loved watching him gamble. Because for me, it was like watching uh, Zen. He was so focused. Oh, no, and yeah. he'd get on that intuitive bent, and he'd put those stacks up. And I would look at him and think, what about all the starving children? And he would add another stack. <laughs> but I loved watching that. But the thing about him was, like, when we went in to do the Sicilian, right. and they picked us up at the airport, this car, this big black car, and took us right to the embassy. At the embassy, they talked in those hieroglyphics, man. They'd say, people who know, know the people who know, who don't want you to be in Montelepre because they know the people. And I looked at Mario and I said, Mario, this is dialogue you could have wrote. It. They talked for 15 minutes and didn't say a damn thing. Yeah. And he said, Shh. Just walk behind me. We go down. So he promised them everything. He promised them. He'd let them know when he was ready to leave and the whole bit. And what happened was we got downstairs and we had a guide called Giuseppe. We got in the car and Mario says to this guy, take us right to Montelepre. After he had sworn the Roman embassy, he wasn't going anywhere near it. We went to Montelepre and passed all those awful hills where the bandit Giuliani was, you know. And we go into this town and it was like sinking into a deep valley and all the shuttered windows were closed, you know, and people would look out between yeah. the, it was the scariest place I ever was. And he said to me, walk behind me, carry a camera and look like a tourist. I said, look like a tourist. He had this big cigar and he moved, he walked all through Montelepre and every place we went was a dead end and it was the scariest thing and he says he's walking through town with this big cigar and he's he's passing all these guys playing bocce with their caps down and everything you know and he'd walk by and all he would do was nod and they would all look down like that fast like it had like they were nervous like it was like, don cheech yeah exactly right and okay so he said when i turn around you all turn around, get in the car, and we get out of here quick. And he walked past. I have this story in the book. It's it's better told than I'm telling it now. But as we go on to get in the car to go out of there and stuff like this, I look up toward the church, and there's this guy standing at the and top of the church. And I thought, if I had to pick a dawn, he would look like that guy because every the, the absolute streets opened, you know. We got in the car, we rode back past his house, but we had to pass the cemetery where he wanted pictures of Pesciotti and Giuliani. So we picked, we couldn't get in because it was locked. 
And I'm telling you, you know Italians. Yeah, on top of that whole thing, they had a big sign that said, we were once as you are, you will be as we are. And I said, oh, wow, talk about optimism or whatever. And he <laughs> said, we couldn't get in because we couldn't, we didn't have a key. And so Mario and, Ju and Giuseppe lift me up to this high fence so I could get down and open the gate so we could go in and take pictures in there. Wow. And Mario, after that, he had to do an interview or two. And I said, I want to come because I want to learn how to do, I want to learn how to do publicity. And he said, no, you can't come. And I went into this big fit about, you don't want to be seen with me. I'm embarrassed. He said, there's nothing to do with that. I said, tell me the truth. And he said, I swear it doesn't. I said, then tell me something that makes sense. He says, okay. He says, I don't want you to be kidnapped and get your ear in a box sent back to me because then I'm going to have to pay the ransom and my kids are going to lose their inheritance. So you have to stay with Joseph and go shopping. That's and funny. when you come back, I promise you, I'll buy you earrings. But I want to be able to buy you two. That's funny. <laughs> well, that was the same time when they kidnapped uh, Gucci's grandson. That's where yeah, he got I that dialogue. Hey, that afternoon, the afternoon we left, there was that second mafia war where they killed everybody. We had just gotten out of town, man. What year was that? Uh, well, it had to be between 78 and 82, so it yeah, had to be yeah. somewhere in there. Yeah, that, that, that massacre was the end of uh, 79. Yeah, okay, then there. Yeah. It was between 78 and... They blew up two miles of highway. Yeah, yeah. Just to get to one guy. <laughs> you hear that, Megan? Yeah, that's they, crazy. They bought two, two miles of highway just to get one guy. Blew it up. Yeah, I remember you were telling me that before. That was yeah. that... That's was all that whole thing was going on. Brother. You want to hear the funniest thing? You probably know this, Jeremy, but the funniest thing that nobody else knew is you know how Mario used to smoke that cigar and just nod and just right. nod, right? He couldn't talk Italian for shit. Neither could I. I, I <laughs> still, I'm still learning English, not a lot of Italian. They would know we were so cool, and it's because who the hell understood what anybody was saying? Yeah. We couldn't talk back to them. I mean, I could get the gist of what they were saying, but I could have never answered them. Right. Neither could well, that dialogue is so much different, and they did yeah. that deliberately. It's the saying dialogue is, yeah. I mean, unless you yeah. speak it every day, you never know what they're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but I think the funnest part of Mario and I were the fact that he liked fancy footwork and he liked he liked a win. So whether I won or he won, it was a win. And he liked that kind of challenge, you know? Oh, so the dialogue in me and Mario is really, the book I wrote, is really our dialogue. I mean, it was really um, like he would say to me, I, I got mad at him one time for something. Who knows what? And I said to him, you know what? On the on the flip side of your humility, there's, there's real arrogance. And he said to me, yeah? And on the flip side of your arrogance, there's just more arrogance. <laughs> and I thought that was so funny. I started to laugh so we could never really fight. Well, I know Megan, <laughs> who was intrigued with you, has a lot of questions that... Uh, she uh, always acts like our audience and the uh, X generation, because Pat and I know an awful lot about Mario, and, and basically, 
Pat wrote My Tongue also. My, um, our book is done so well because of his genius writing, fortunately. That's and, a lot of things, man. Nothing but genius. Thank you. No, but none. <laughs> so, Megan, what, what do you... I know you have so many questions. Oh, absolutely. Well, I read Me and Mario, so some of those questions have been answered for me, but I want to share that with our audience, of course. Um, I loved the book. I read it very quickly. And um, I guess one of the questions I have now is, um, I know you met Mario after The Godfather. So did he really ever fully realize his success or like think of himself as a celebrity? No. He said, first of all, he'd been poor too long to think well of it. <laughs> right. But I remember during one interview, I don't think it was Larry King, I don't remember, but somebody said to him, do you understand the legacy you left, the legend you are? And he just looked at him and he said, no, I can't relate to that. And he really couldn't. I mean, he really... Yeah, he was always the same guy. Yeah. And, you know, it's so funny because with him, and I knew, I knew him so well, even from afar, you didn't know if he had a dime or $10 million because that's the way he lived. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. He used to tease about his brother. He used to borrow money from his brother. And then he used to, he used to take a cab over to borrow money from his brother, who always took subways and buses, <laughs> so he could save money to lend Mario, who took a cab over to borrow it. We had a big dinner party at the house one night, and and, and Mario and and uh, Marlon were staying at the, at the house. It was amazing. Chateau Benefiat was Johnny Agnelli's house, and it was and he loved me for years, and he wanted them to stay there just for the bragging rights. Mm -hmm. And every night, uh, we, we uh, a good friend of mine, Erwin Alphen, he always wanted to come up, and he was the head of uh, Balafusai. So at the woman's place setting, we had a bottle of Balafusai, and at the men's place setting, we had a Hermes pocket square every night. And you, you could only appreciate this, Carol. At the end of the night, whoever didn't take the Balafusai or the pocket squares, Mario took them all. <laughs> oh my God. No, he was a very funny man. And I asked him one time, I said, are you trying to be, are you intentionally funny or is this just who you are? And he said, I don't know. How does one decide that? Oh. <laughs> he said, in fact, he said, a lot of people don't get my sense of humor. And I was, I was, um, I guess, I was very lucky in that because he was the only man who ever enchanted rather than disenchanted me over time, you know? That could be because we never lived together for any length of time. We used to vacation together and he always had other people to help him, you know, so. Oh, that's a question I was gonna ask you. So you didn't move into the house with the children? Oh my God, help us, no. Okay. I mean, I'm lucky I stayed in the house with my children. No, but I'm just saying because I know how protective they were of their mother. Oh, yeah. But I felt the same way about Erica that they did. And I thought it was very wonderful. And I thought I admired him more for the kind of man, father, and husband he was right. than for his writing. Right. What I did love is that he allowed me to be me. And because there's no way I can stop being me. It doesn't matter what the cost well, is. Well, that'd be like you asking him to change. <laughs> they ain't gonna right? do that either. So. And you know what it is? We were lucky that the things that were really quirky about us weren't the things that irritated the shit out of each other. 
you no. know, and then you get on the way home from any three months where we lived together on vacation, whether it was Kwan or Malibu or whatever, we'd both be on the plane coming home and he'd say, how you feeling, honey? And I'd say, I am, I am so dying to get home. I cannot tell you how much I want to be home in my own house. And he said, I feel the same way, you know, <laughs> and we could acknowledge that, you know, that That's great. we had, we had separate dynasties like he would say i'll be the king of england and you could be the king of france and i'd say why king why can't i be the queen of france and he said are you kidding he said you're a natural they'd behead you in a minute he says, <laughs> king. Nice. <laughs> so, yeah. Such a great guy. oh you're funny yeah <laughs> So, Carol, people say that the character of Don Corleone was based on, you know, various mobsters or a combination of them, which I'm sure very well might be true. But who did he say he heard when he heard the voice of Don Corleone? That was funny because that was after a very long session. You could tell he wrote The Fortunate Pilgrim very early, but it was reprinted in 1996 after he and I had been together for a while. And one conversation where he was talking to me about the difference in power between men and women, how men have so much power in the outside world, but women have so much inner power. Suddenly, he turns to me after we have this big, long conversation, and he said, Oh my God, I just realized something. I said, what? He says, every time the dawn opens his mouth, I hear my mother's voice. The oh, one he funny. called Lucia Santa in The Fortunate Pilgrim. And it, I said, it took you this long to get that? And he said, yeah. He says, look at this. They have her same loyalty, her ruthlessness. I said, ruthlessness? He said, sure. You saw some things my mother did. But yeah. When that when that occurred to him, he said, oh, my God, I never realized that every time I listened to the dawn open his mouth, I hear his <laughs> voice. And I thought, I bet you every little Italian kid thinks that. <laughs> that was that was a great book, too. Yeah. He's really he, he really he really captured the, the mob. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, he did. He did. And I can tell you as a bystander, an outsider, that when I went to Vegas with him, when everybody was screaming that the mob was running Vegas, right? it was a lot better than when, than when business took it over. That's all I have to tell oh, you. Right, tell I don't me know about why it. it was better, but it was a treat and a trip. Oh, and I, I, I got there in 1959. I left in 89. I was there for 30 years, and I wow. watched the transition when, yeah. uh, which is a whole thing, another subject that we're, we're really getting involved in now in our next yeah. book. And yeah. that's when they, you know, the federal government backed Howard Hughes to buy those hotels just yeah. so they can infiltrate it. That's why Bill Danner and Bob Mayhew, they're all CIA guys and FBI guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I well, had, I had the same conversation that uh, Megan's question was with Mario one night and he said you probably know the three people I said can I guess he said yeah I said well the olive oil had to be Joe Pavacci I said the image of the dawn was you know Carlo Gambino and the guy who, who I know personally who had all the politicians and everybody in his pocket was Frank Costello 
And he says, you nailed it. <laughs> That's wild. Though. Yeah. Well, That's great. Said, yeah. Yeah. But it, every time he still says, every time he opened his mouth, he heard his mother. <laughs> <laughs> there was that influence there. Yeah, he didn't yeah. even realize while he was writing. Right. Um, how did he feel about the films and about Francis Ford Coppola? He loved Francis. He really Maybe did. Yeah. Francis was I, like his brother. I didn't. I didn't particularly feel the same way about Francis. Why is that? Uh, why? Um, I suppose I didn't. Mario loved him because he took Mario's book and he put it on screen. And Mario said, "You live and die by casting." And Francis did on the screen what Mario imagined. Why I was put off by Francis is because I spent a lot of years uh, as a nurse in all the intensive care areas. He didn't frighten me and he didn't impress me. And I didn't understand his skill as a director. Mario said that he was a genius and I said, all right. But I watched his condescension with all the women and I wasn't good like that because I was brought up by a father who never treated me like a girl. So I was, I used to think, what is this guy's problem, you know? But, um, you know, Mario just was loyal to him and loved him to death because he said he's like one of those genius directors who can pull a rabbit out of his hat. I'm wondering if he did that with Godfather 3, because Mario and I had the biggest fight. That's what I wrote in uh, Me and Mario. And I'm wondering if he used what Mario told me he wanted the ending to be, or whether he did pull a rabbit out of a hat and make it look different. Well, they're recutting it now. We're going to find out. Yeah, I know. I know. And I'm interested to find out whether, because when I saw that, I thought, oh, I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> no, but you know, I, Francis at that time was going through a lot of problems with three. Yeah, and, yeah, I imagine, yeah. And so yeah. I think he was just totally confused in a lot of ways that I didn't want to disclose. But no, uh, no, I understand what you're talking about. That and yeah, he had a little bit of my compassion for that. And 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 tremendous pressure. Yes. And and yes. Pacino wanted to leave. Everybody mm. was leaving him. And, and, I know, I remember, I was sitting up in Malibu with Mario, and we kept get, I'd get these calls, and I'd say, who's Frank Mancuso? Who's Frank <laughs> And Mario would go. He's the new boss. He's the new boss, yeah. He, it's his picture, sweetheart. <laughs> I, I like Frank Mancuso like, Jr., though. Yeah. No, I mean, he liked these. I'm not, he just said, I'm not... And they all gave him a chance to go to talk to Francis. And Mario was the one who chose to say, no, I'm a writer. A film belongs to the director. I'm a writer. I wouldn't let anybody change my book. And that's when he was writing the fourth K, which was quite visionary as far as I'm concerned. Right. Wow. So you finished his book, The Family, right? After he passed yeah. away? Yes, I did. How was, that, how was that experience of completing his work? You know, I had, Mario always said he wouldn't collaborate till after he was dead, right? So when mm -hmm. people used to write these reviews and blame me for writing the books that they didn't think lived up to The Godfather, I would say, why did they think I would write something like that? That's <laughs> and funny. I, we was writing one of them, and uh, 
Omerta maybe or the last dawn where he had Nicole uh, take over the banks or something and her everybody was fighting with her and her brothers were fighting with her and he had her sitting down and crying and I said Mary I can't read this and type this I can't type this an independent woman today is not going to sit down and say oh I can't bear because my brother then she'd say fuck off and leave me alone go take care of your own business <laughs> so he said all right I'll reconsider <laughs> so when I was finishing the family I had to write Mario Lee's you know I had to puzzle it up it, it mm -hmm. wasn't my voice and that's why it took me so long to want to write more of my own books because I needed to reclaim my own voice but if I changed one sentence of Mario's even though his writing was so unintelligible even he couldn't read it once he hand wrote it if I changed a word he'd look at it and he'd say oh no I don't know who wrote this but an English professor must have written this and he changed <laughs> it to, to something else so we didn't collaborate till after he was dead I would just point out to him the insanity of the president of a bank who was a strong woman crying when her brothers picked on her Hey, Pat, I'm interested to hear what you're thinking. Being a writer and a co-writer, this is interesting. It has to be interesting information for you. For I just recently reread The Godfather. I had originally read it when it first came out. And I based all my memories on the movie, but not the book. I mean, it's been a long time, 50 years. Uh, I read it about two months ago, and I realized that Mario Puzo invented a style that up until then wasn't known to the uh, to the writers of America or anywhere else for that matter. He would write a chapter, and then in the following chapter, go back in in a flashback to what led up to the previous chapter. And he was a genius at that. He he, he thought that up himself. Uh, if if you recall the book, you know. People, uh, practically everybody read The Godfather, but I don't know how many people reread it. And it isn't anything like the movie. In fact, a lot of the characters are different. A lot of the outcomes of the characters are different. But he was, I think he was an undervalued writer in his time. And if it wasn't for The Godfather, uh, which was not as literary as his other books, but I would like to know, uh, Carol, if, if you do know, the motivation behind writing that book. Okay. Because he really was passionate about his writing. He felt it, is, it was his way out of Hell's Kitchen. And he knew he'd die of quiet desperation if he had to stay there. He knew that the first two books were claimed literary classics and he made less than $5,000. So everybody in his family was calling him a chooch because he couldn't support his family. And he kept making bets with all of them that anytime he wanted to write a bestseller, he could write a bestseller. Finally, it got so bad and they were so poor that he mortgaged his house to go over to Germany to take Erica back to see her family. And he knew when he got home, he would have to get rid of the, if this book didn't sell, he'd have to get rid of everything. And he hadn't even told Erica that. So he set his mind to writing a bestseller. And that's why the irony in The Fortunate Pilgrim said, so I wrote a bestseller, I had finally done the right thing. But he felt it was a sellout. 
And yet over time, what he found was that that sellout brought him to his true gift of storytelling. Because in truth, he was not a literary man. He was a storyteller. And that was the transition. And after that, he could basically write anything he wanted. And he, he, he deserved you know what? Yeah, but you know what? The thing was, Patrick, that he would want to offer his audience more. Like when he wrote the fourth K, and let me tell you, those he has an enormous skill of being able to get into the minds of people like his terrorists and stuff like that. So you could understand them and understand maybe not their aim, but their feelings about it and stuff. And that fourth K was all about America being so arrogant that they could wind up with a fascist president and not even know it not even know how it happened. And that book got buried so fast, I can't even begin to tell you. No. But he wanted to give. He wanted to give his audience different stuff, but they wanted mafia stories. From oh, him. yeah. And that's why he kept writing those stories. A writer who, who can be labeled a genius, uh, in one of the definitions anyway, is a writer whose work is timeless. And if somebody was to pick up The Godfather for the first time, this, that was written in the 1960s. So if they picked this book up for the first time, it would be transported back to that time, but it's still current. There's nothing about the language, the composition of the sentences. It's, it just could be read 200 years from now, and people will get it. That, therein lies, if that's the correct grammar, therein lies his genius. But the way he was able to construct a sentence, to construct a, a, a chapter, the work is brilliant. The more a writer writes, the more he appreciates or does not appreciate other writers. And right. when I the Godfather, I said, now this man finally got the accolades that he deserved. Whether it was for a book he didn't want the accolades for, he certainly deserved it. Yeah. The thing is about Mario is that he was incredibly interested in people. He was really, he didn't think of what he was going to say back to them. He always asked them how they felt or why they felt about things like that. He had a very good voice, uh, or I should say a very good ear. And in, yes. in writing terminology, that means you can pick up people's right. accents, you, you can pick up inflections, you can think what they say versus what they really wanted to say right. and put it on paper. Not right. many writers can do that. If the writer yeah. has a good ear, he's yeah. gonna, he can wind up successful no matter how many took the books it takes right. to yeah, actually, yeah, Patrick, that's what he told me. He said to me, you have an ear. He said, you can't teach writing, but right. it can be learned. And I'll, I'll send you, Jenny, um, I want to hear if you would know it too. Um, I'll send you a couple books so you could hear Mario. Because even his kids said to me, Tony said to me, hey, you got the old man. You nailed him. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's... That's the ultimate compliment. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah hello. Yeah. yeah. Well, he was right, too. So you can't teach writing like you can't teach humor. Either you're funny or you're not. Yeah. Either you can yeah. write or you can't. What holds your skill is writing. The more you write, yeah. the better you get if you have the innate talent to begin with. But I teach in a, in a, in a, in a graduate program, uh, and the, the thesis is a publishable novel. Be surprised so many people are in that graduate program who just cannot write. Right. And, uh, they'll, they'll go through the entire course of three and a half years and hand in something passable 
but it's not publishable and it will never be publishable because the innate talent is just not there. Yeah. If you don't have that. I don't care how many yeah. books you write. And you're not getting yeah. anywhere. Yeah. Hey guys, this was fun. Well, October fifteenth. October fifteenth was a hundred year old birthday. I can't believe yeah. it. Yeah. 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 So yeah. we have to say happy birthday to Mario in heaven. Yes, Carol, yes. you are a delight. And Thank you're you. welcome back anytime. You now have a a a a, 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 a um, what would I call Megan? She it really impressed with you. And now we now we understand <laughs> why. Megan, she was such fun that night at the celebration. She was We've been chatting a lot. Yeah, fun. yeah. Yeah, it was. You know it is. If humans are real humans and they're authentic and stuff like that, there aren't separations between things like age and place and time. And oh, that. never. Not at all. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Kyle, for coming on with thank us tonight. You. It was a pleasure speaking oh, with you, as always. It's a pleasure talking to you, Gianni, and you, Patrick, and of course, Megan. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you. Thank you. And Have happy birthday, night. Mario. Happy yeah. birthday, Mario. Thank you so much, guys. All right. Bye-bye. Bye now. Bye. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today's show is being sponsored by Cordelione Fine Italian Food Products. This sponsor really means a lot to me. Cordelione Fine Italian has taken the heart and soul of the Godfather films and created a line of food products that include pasta sauce, balsamic vinegar from Modena, Italy, Genco Extra Virgin Olive Oil from Sicily. They created delicious pasta sauces, marinade, tomato basil, arrabbiato, and my favorite, Clemenza's meat sauce. You will be amazed. You will think your grandmother made the sauce herself. CorleoneFineItalian.com That's CorleoneFineItalian.com Hi, Patrick Picciarelli here, announcing the release of the second book in the Ray Yale Private Investigator series titled Pop line. In this outing, Yale journeys to Pennsylvania to help a deceased friend's sister who has been charged with the murder of her police officer husband. An outsider doesn't sit well with the local cops and Pittsburgh organized crime figures, which leads Yale down a treacherous path of deception, murder, and a crime so ingenious that it has never been duplicated in mystery fiction. Pop line is available exclusively on Amazon.com. Well, I guess it's time to go to the mailbag. <laughs> All right, let's do it. Okay, so first we have a message from John. John says, I love the show. I think you three are fantastic. I found out when I first saw the movie The Godfather that Luca Brazzi is my aunt's grandfather, and he took some of the props home after filming, and she still has them till today. So there was no question at that, but I wanted to say, Gianni, tell us about some of the props. I know you've mentioned it, you've mentioned it before, but what are some of the props that you have? Well, mine are, but I, I don't, I, I, you said that, I don't know what Luco Brazzi could have taken. <laughs> because, <laughs> I mean, maybe the garage. Maybe he just, his... just stole them. <laughs> well, everybody was taking things because we had this innate feeling that it's going to be a great movie. But the, yeah. the stuff that I acquired were memorable to me and one of them is on my bar yet is the garbage pail cover that I got beaten up with. There were several of them but I made sure I got the one that really 
that, that Jimmy Conn really did me in with. <laughs> and um, no, but this even the garrot that Clemenza used. I don't know why I wanted it, and I just wanted it. But um, you know, it's uh, collecting things. Fortunately, I'm now, have souvenirs. Well, after 46 movies, I had to stop taking stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Not gonna have any room left in your yeah. little New York apartment. So. All right. Next one is from James. James says, Hi, Patrick. I admire your work as an author and loved your work on Hollywood Godfather. While in grad school, I studied literary journalism and was fascinated by Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, which is a masterpiece in crime nonfiction. Have you read the book? Did you like it? Also, I live in North Carolina, not far from Fort Bragg, where the Jeffrey McDonald mur murders took place that were immortalized in the book Fatal Vision by Joe McGinnis. Did you ever have thoughts about the case or that book? Okay, uh, Truman Capote started uh, his his own genre. Uh, he he fictionalized a true crime event, uh, which he injected himself into. Uh, the book, when it came out, was in the 1970s. For those who don't know about it, it was uh, two petty criminals who decided to up the ante, and they had heard that a family uh, by the name of Clutter in Manhattan, Kansas, uh, kept cash in the house. They went to steal the cash, and the result of it, uh, they wiped out the entire family. They were tried, and they were hung. During the course of the trial, Capote heard of it and went to do a, uh, an, an, an article that was supposed to be strictly journalistic. It was a, an article for a periodical. He went there, and he got romantic feelings for one of the killers. Uh, and he wrote the, the, uh, the, the, the story the way he saw it and fictionalized it a bit. He started an entirely new uh, genre, which is called creative nonfiction, uh, which I have done in the past. Now, as far as the Jeffrey McDonald case, I'm a student of that case, have been since uh, Fatal Vision came out. In fact, it was just a recent uh, documentary series on uh, uh, Hulu about it. In fact, it was last month they did uh, six episodes. To this day, uh, Jeffrey McDonald was a Special Forces captain and an MD who was accused of wiping out his family with the sister of his wife and two young daughters, both under the age of seven, uh, during uh, uh, an evening at home in Fort Bragg, where he said that uh, this is during the height of the Vietnam War, where there's a lot of anti-war sentiment. He said three hippies came into his house and wiped out his family. Uh, for some reason, they left him alive with a punctured lung and a couple of uh, bruises and black and blue marks. But uh, after uh, two trials, uh, one was a uh, military trial, the second one was a, a civilian trial, he was convicted and he's been in jail ever since. He's been in jail for over 40 years. Uh, my research and a lot of other people's research, you know, this is one of these cases like the Kennedy assassination. Either believe in a conspiracy or you don't. In Jeffrey McDonald's case, I'm absolutely 100% sure that he, he, he killed his family under the influence of uh, a, uh, a drug he was using to keep him, keep him awake, because he was uh, on call for sometimes 48 hours at a time. And one of the side effects of this drug was psychotic, violent behavior. But to this day, now this guy was uh, uh, very into himself, those of you who have uh, read the book, and if you haven't, Fatal Vision, I don't think has ever gone out of print, uh, by uh, Joe McGinnis. Joe McGinnis started out uh, writing the book from Jeffrey McDonald's point of view, and when he wrote the book in the last chapter, he said that he thinks McDonald is a killer, 
and he laid out the reasons why McDonald sued him, the civil court for millions of dollars. It was a, uh, it was a case that, that pardon the pun, never died. Uh, McDonald has exhausted all his appeals. He's done over almost 40 years in the can, and he could get out on parole tomorrow. Uh, he's been denied parole many times. And for those of you who have, are versed in the subject, one of the ways you get parole is to admit your past mistakes. And in this case, it was wiping out his family. He will not do it. And he has wow. his, his detractors and he has his fans. You're either on one side or the other. It's like being slightly pregnant. You either are or you aren't. <laughs> no. I'm, 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 I'm the guy that's pregnant. And I think he was 100% guilty. But yeah, what a ball. Wow, that's fascinating. No answer to a short question. <laughs> All right, moving on. Another one for Patrick. Daniel says, Patrick, I just finished reading Bloodshot Eyes. Excellent book, really enjoyed it, and I would strongly recommend it. In your book, you have one former cop who is dirty and a character that seems to be based on Howard Stern. Have you gotten any pushback regarding those depictions? Well, that character is based on Howard not based on Howard Stern. I used him as a model for the character. And you know why I couldn't base him actually on Stern if you read the book, or will read the book. But I... I did security work for Howard for a long time. I bodyguarded him and his family for a long time. So before I wrote the book, I bounced it off of him. I said, I'm going to put you in this book. He says, that's great. I'll threaten to sue you. You come on the show, I'll throw a chair at you. It'll be great for sales. I mean, Howard was a, it still is a great guy. Wow. I haven't talked to him in many years since I moved to Pennsylvania. But, uh, yeah, that was my first novel. And I based that book on a lot of real people. And Howard, who I admired, was one of them. So, yeah, he's he's the bad guy, for those of you who haven't read the book. And I think anybody who doesn't get a kick out of it. But I had a good time. Mm -hmm. All right, next one is also from Daniel. Daniel says, are there any movie roles that Gianni turned down and regrets? Are there any roles he accepted and regrets? Not really. No, I, I, I approached acting a lot different than most people. A lot of people need the money and they'll do the role just to get, the, and I, I always had to have a feeling for it because number one, I was in a different situation. Acting to me is like I describe to my children when they say they want to become an actor or an actress. Well, it's all actors now. You can't say actress. It's a new genre. Everybody's an actor. But my point was to them, you only become an actor when you are in the most exclusive country club and you really don't care about money anymore because you're really not going to make it. When you look at the odds of supporting yourself, not alone a family, as an actor, it's far and few between. So I mean, every, every me personally, every role I wanted to try, big or small, just to take on the characters and see if I could do it. I was just challenging myself in the arts. So the, the roles you see me and I wanted. Definitely the first one. Yep. All right. Next is from Bob. Bob says, I first heard of Gianni's book on the Tom Bernard show. And to date, I have purchased Gianni's book 11 times as gifts. Everyone I gave the book to loved it. I love the podcast, and I hope that Megan realizes her importance to the show. My question is, does Gianni, Patrick, or Megan have any Minneapolis stories? Minneapolis? 
Mm -hmm. No, I, I don't see Minneapolis as one exciting place for me to go, so I don't know about you two. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't insult the guy. I didn't insult the guy. I don't have a story. I didn't go. Really? Maybe if I went, I'll find something to be excited about. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I can't say I've been there either. Well, three out of three. Don't blame me. Well, <laughs> sorry. Maybe we will have gone. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Last one for tonight is from Rob. Rob says, big fan of the podcast since I heard you, Gianni, on Jim and Sam on Sirius Satellite Radio. Immediately bought the book. Would love to get it signed one day. Hopefully you'll make it back to Toronto, Canada when this mess is all behind us. My question is, did you know Tony Jr. Sirico? He played some small roles in well-known gangster movies before playing Polly in The Sopranos. Apparently he had some connections to OC in his younger days. Did you ever cross paths? Was he as funny in real life? I, you know, I don't want to talk about him because I don't know him well. And what I do know of him in his little uh, escapades, being a wannabe or a mobster, was all things I would never get involved in. So, I mean, he capitalized on it, and it's still selling for him. So I really don't have an opinion about him at all, which I think is the biggest insult I can give anybody. <laughs> all right. Well, there we go. All right, guys, that's all I have for tonight. Another great show. All right. So as we always say, we need you out there. You're building our following. To me, it can never be big enough. Fortunately, we are now known in about seven countries. We get mail from all those countries. So please tell your friends, stay tuned, write letters, tell your friends, spread the word, because we want to be bigger than U.S. Steel. Good night, everybody. God bless you. Good night, guys. Everybody loves somebody sometimes Everybody falls in love somehow Something in your kiss just told me Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. We'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night. For everybody, love somebody sometime. And although my dreams overdue, your love made it well worth waiting for someone like you. If I in my power, I would arrange 
Furry girl to have your charm But every minute or every hour Every boy would find what I found in your arms Oh, everybody loves somebody sometimes Someone Someone